Recovery Elevator, episode 89. But I did quit a thousand times in my own head. <laughs> uh, I think we all have. <laughs> we woke up that next morning and said, there's no way I'm touching another drink. Uh, you know, a few, few days go by, start, good stuff starts happening, and you feel better. The, the weather's great. You decide to drink again, and it's, it's a revolving circle, and that's how it was for me. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 25 months and three weeks. On today's podcast, we've got Zach. He's got twin boys, and he's been sober for over 3.5 years. Before we go any further today, I'd like to give a shout out to Pam in Wyoming. Congratulations on two years of continuous sobriety. You're a rock star. I met Pam in person on January 23rd at the Bozeman Recovery Elevator Meetup, and Pam said something that has stuck with me to the day. That is, you got to get through it to get to it. What that means, there are no quick fixes. Hate to break it to you. I've searched high. I've searched low. I've searched under many couch cushions for the quick fix to my alcohol problem. But that little piece of wisdom that I heard on that night has stuck with me to the day. I got to feel these emotions. I got to get through it to get to it. Can't go around. Can't circumvent. There is no shortcut. That's what I got to do. Thank you, Pam. After our topic and after chatting with Zach, I'm going to talk with you guys about the recovery elevator meetup we had in Chicago this past weekend. There was a handful of us that flew from around the country to meet up in Chicago to expand our recovery network. It was a great time. For myself, Paul Churchill, getting sober, it was not easy. Relapse was a common theme. In and out of the rooms, doing that tap dance, that happened also many, many times. In fact, I'm still in the rooms. But we all know that one person, or a handful of these people, who seem to just get sober on their own, fast, with no relapses. It's almost for this person, it was like, hey, what am I going to wear tomorrow? Blue shirt, red shirt, I'm going to go red. Oh, and at the same time, I'm going to get sober. They make the decision, stick with it, and it's that easy. One of my best friends named Nate, he was interviewed in episode eight on this podcast. This was how it went for him. I don't see him as much as I'd like to because he has a one-year-old at home, a lovely wife, and I guess that's what happens to people when they get married and have kids. Their time's consumed by them. I totally get it. But the other day I asked Nate, hey man, how is your sobriety going? He's like, oh gosh, man, I don't, I don't even... Yeah, great question. I don't even really think about it anymore. I'm like, oh, yeah, cool, Nate. I just, you know, I just kind of want to punch you in the face right now. Kidding, of course. That's awesome for Nate. But we all know a couple of those people that just woke up one day and decided to quit drinking. So I play on an adult ice hockey league. It's pretty much a beer league. Yep, quitting drinking was hard. Skating backward, nearly impossible. And after every game, sure enough, just like the sun comes up the next day, a 12-pack of PBR or some other beer gets passed around the room. Look across, this guy Duncan, I realized, wait a second, I don't think I've ever seen him take a beer. Asked him about it. He said, oh yeah, you know, I was in the military, I was in Australia, and I went out and made an ass of myself at a bar, and uh, I just stopped drinking. It's been like 20 years since my last drink. Like, oh, that's awesome. I also want to punch you right in the gut. Kidding, of course, except that one time when he didn't pass me the puck on a breakaway, I would have nailed it. I score like two goals a season, so probably wouldn't have nailed it, but you get the point. If you don't know a Nate or a Duncan, I guarantee you do. Open your eyes at family functions, at the next event, and think about someone that really has never drank around you. Go up and ask them. Could be a religious reason, could be they don't like the taste, but a lot of the time they decided they had a problem with alcohol and they just stopped drinking. Good for them, and I'm happy they didn't have to go through the shit that I went through. So you've heard me talk about stats on this podcast about people getting sober. I wonder what the stats are for people who just decide to quit drinking. I want to look at the success rates with sobriety without rehab. 
I mean, seriously, rehab costs thousands of dollars. I know someone who has been to rehab more than 20 times. I think it was like their 22nd or 23rd time of rehab. That's something stuck. So I was, and you might be as well, that people who just suddenly decide to quit drinking like a change of the seasons, they're about four and seven times more successful than participants in our main alcoholism treatment approach. That would be AA. Now, this is according to a recent study done by the NIAAA. And again, you can find links to these studies in the recoveryelevator.com show notes. Go to episode 89 on the website. Yeah, according to this study, more than one-third of individuals with alcohol dependence fully recovered without any treatment. They went from alcohol dependence defined as demonstrating tolerance, withdrawal symptoms, and unsuccessful attempts to reduce or stop their consumption to not drinking at all, or drinking at levels that were no longer harmful and no longer characterized as dependence. I see a slight red flag in this study because drinking at levels that were no longer harmful is something that I tried millions of times that would be moderation. For me, it doesn't work. So it looks like they had some normal drinkers who were binge drinkers in this case study. That's just my two cents. Can't back that up with evidence. Here's another one for you. Dr. Lance Dodes, a recently retired professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, says... Peer-reviewed studies peg the success rate of AA somewhere between 5 and 10%. About one of every 15 people who enter these programs is able to become and stay sober. This reminds me of another study I read. I don't know where I found this from, so I can't source it for you. But in New York City, there was a study done on January 1st. They tracked 100 people in an AA meeting on January 1st the following year. Only five people were in that room. Now, a lot of those people could have simply chose to go to a different meeting. A lot of those people could have moved to a different state, but five out of 100 people were in those rooms. Those numbers are congruent with these findings in this study. Now, I interviewed a stats major named Kenny just a couple podcasts ago, and he told me to throw the stats out the window. They're depressing. They really are. Don't even think about the stats. Thinking you're different, your terminal uniqueness in this regard is a good thing. Tell yourself you will be different. You will overcome the stats. Telling yourself, my story's different, this program went for me, no, not such a good thing to say. And after interviewing over 95 people, let me tell you right now, your story is not much different. Okay, so let's recap. According to the NIAAA study, more than one-third of individuals, let's just say 35%, so 35 out of that 100 people, after one year, they're still sober? This is crazy compared to just the 5-10% to of people that do traditional routes like AA. When I asked Nate, when I asked Duncan, when I asked others who seem to just at the drop of a hat quit drinking, say, hey, how'd you do it? It's like, well, I, I don't know. I, I, I just quit. And that was 22 years ago. Oh, yeah. And then I saw the movie Roadhouse afterward. Oh, yeah. Another person just came to mind. A good friend of mine named Dusty. He's about 13 months sober right now. He had a rocky incident at a bar. The next day was like, yeah, I'm done. The dude has never looked back. Further studies show 75% of people who recover from alcohol dependence do so without seeking any kind of help, including specialty alcohol rehab programs and AA. Again, these sources will be at recoveryelevator.com, show notes, episode 89. So how can this be? Maybe the people who just decide to quit drinking, they take more ownership of that decision. It seems to me like they're more at peace with that decision because they made the choice. Maybe these individuals, they focus on successes and don't dwell on the failures. Maybe they keep in mind that all improvements count, not even the small ones. For them, a relapse is just a small hiccup. It doesn't really matter. I mentioned the word ownership earlier. This is a key personality trait that all these individuals possess. They are not victims. This is a big one here. 
If you do decide to quit drinking at the flip of a coin and you have a victim mentality, aka it was somebody else's fault, it's probably not going to happen. These people, if they make mistakes, they own up to it, they make it right, and they do it fast. These individuals, it appears they live life with full control of their destiny. I don't recall them ever blaming something on somebody else. They usually take full ownership of the problems and the fortunes in their life. That is a huge one right there. Whether you want to get sober on your own or with a program, ownership of your life, that is key. Okay, let's pump the brakes here for a second. I'm sure about 500 of you right now are like, oh sweet, I don't need to go to AA. I was thinking about going to rehab, but this guy Paul says, screw it. Nope, that's not at all what I'm saying. I personally was curious on this subject matter and I wanted to share what I found with you. It's a complicated beast and I'm sorry if I just made it a little bit more complicated. I highly recommend if you do decide to quit drinking and you want to do it on your own, go to an AA meeting. At least know where that resource is. I don't want to bring politics into this podcast, but the Affordable Care Act is pretty cool for alcoholics. Insurance now pays for a lot of rehab facilities. And in my research for this podcast episode, I found there's a handful of people that go to rehab after months of sobriety, some after years of sobriety. I interviewed a gentleman named Paul, episode 12 for this podcast. He went to rehab at six months of sobriety. That's crazy. But my thinking gets out of control. And right around 18 months of sobriety, I find myself somewhat coasting. I think it'd be kind of cool to go to rehab with over two years of sobriety. And I get about two to three emails a week of rehab centers wanting to advertise on this podcast. And since I've never been to those facilities, I decline every single one. However, if you're listening and you work at a rehab facility and you want to sponsor me for a month at your facility, shoot me an email. I'm highly interested. In January, my plan is to go to the rehab facility of a gentleman named Simon Mott. I interviewed him on this podcast probably 10 episodes ago. He has a facility in Thailand. Hey, I'm going to go check out Thailand and go to rehab. Well, I'm going to volunteer there for a week, but I plan on having open ears and I want to learn. All right, before we hear from Zach, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Zach, how are you? Good, Paul. How you doing, man? I'm great. Thanks for asking. Zach, let's get right into this. When was your last drink? Sure, sure. My last drink was March 9th, about four years ago. I've been sober for three years and seven months now. My last drink was probably about 3 in the morning, if I recall, uh, of March 9th. Nice. There you go. So you got four years coming up this March 10th of 2017. Congratulations with that. And before we get any further, let's learn more about you. Maybe tell listeners where you're from, what you do for a living, how old you are, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? Sure, sure, Paul. Yeah, I'm uh, 27 years old, born and raised in a small town turning big, Cartersville, Georgia, about 40 miles north of Atlanta area. I have two beautiful boys that are twins. They're a little over a year old now. I have a beautiful wife that I just had our two-year anniversary a couple days ago. And I'm 
a marketer by day and a amateur beatboxer for my kids at night. So <laughs> I do some beatboxer. Uh, what does that mean? Yeah, a beatboxer. You know how uh, you go. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, yeah, that sounded really good. Yeah. What I just heard. So <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I had to. Uh, we were looking for ways to try to keep my kids entertained as I changed the diapers, and beatboxing always seemed to calm them down. So <laughs> I've had to, over the past year, learn how to beatbox a little better and better. There you go. And and while you beatbox, I'm looking around my office for some cardboard. I can you know start break dancing, but I couldn't find any cardboard. So I'm sorry, Zach. <laughs> Exactly. Maybe next time. Maybe yeah, I can next time. When your next meetups. Yeah. And did you say you're 27 or 37? I'm 27. Nice. 27 years. There we yeah. go. 27 years young. You're a spring chicken, Zach. Yeah. So you. It sounds like you met your wife. Uh, you've been you've been married for two years. Just had a two year anniversary. Did you meet your wife when you were sober? No, I actually met her uh, when I was active. Uh, I've been with her for a little over seven years now. So I always joke with her and say I had a test driver for about five to six years before I made the purchase. So (laughs) uh, in reality, I I think it was definitely the drinking that had to go before I could actually commit to anything else. So uh, I'm glad that it all happened uh, when I was sober. Uh, My journey since I've been sober has just been awesome. And uh, God's really gave back tenfold for me giving up that drink. Sure. And let's talk about your journey up to the point where you decided to quit drinking or you did quit drinking on March 10th, 2013. Yeah. 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 2013. Um, was that your first time you decided to quit drinking or was it something that led up to that? Yeah. Just tell me a little about your background. Sure. I believe it was the first time I verbally admitted to my wife that I had a problem. Uh, I'm sure everyone around me knew, obviously having a, the record that I have arrest wise, it was obvious. Uh, i I kind of rationalized it with my young age and pretty much all my friends were doing it type thing. But I did quit a thousand times in my own head. <laughs> uh, I think we all have. <laughs> we woke up that next morning and said, there's no way I'm touching another drink. Uh, you know, a few few days go by, start, good stuff starts happening and you feel better. The, the weather's great. You decide to drink again. And it's, it's a revolving circle. And that's how it was for me for a long time. How, how long did that, have when, a, when that long time was at three, four, five years? No, I started drinking when I was about uh, 12 years old. Uh, I had my first Budweiser. I had three Budweisers for my first time. And I remember I was inside of my friend's house, my best friend's house. And all of a sudden, I'm in the pool. I wake up and I'm in the pool and I'm standing there. And I'm like, wow, I just figured out how I could teleport. And uh, it was through alcohol. (laughs) So um, I knew from that moment on that I wanted to... uh, base my future on figuring out how I could drink more and, and, you know, making my life about drinking at a young age. I was, I loved it. Zach, that's amazing. I just figured out how to teleport. Uh, my very first time drinking, I passed out and I woke up and my arm was resting against this heater in the, uh, in a basement. And I, I looked at my arm and it was like a visual burn mark. And I said the same thing to myself. I was like, wow, I just figured out how to not feel pain. This is amazing. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah. So I did that through high school, drank during high school. I was more of a, I would say a weekend warrior. I, I did, you know, I, I was into sports, active in sports most of the time. So I try to keep it to, uh, to the weekends, but I did like, if we had a late practice, I would go out and me and a buddy would get drunk and go back to practice. And, uh, so little stuff like that early on were signs that, you know, I was drinking abnormally, uh, I drink, couple times in the morning before going to school but again it was just like oh we're in high school we're just having fun senior year it was late later in my 
senior year that I went on a school trip and I got busted for having a bottle of uh, Johnny Walker and ended up getting expelled from school and had to go to an alternative school for my half my senior year. Missed my basketball season, uh, half my basketball season, and that, that kind of really started the spiral downward uh, because I pretty much just tarnished anything I had going for me in my, my high school career going into college and uh, I just kind of pretty much accepted the role of, you know, it's it's not going to be a pretty lifestyle. I'm going to make the best of it with drinking. And, and that's kind of where I kickstarted my, my real drinking career, I like to call it. And what was your mind frame like back at that time? Is where 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 is it like, oh, it's all them, like I'm drinking, like I can't believe they kicked me out of school? Or were you starting to recognize a pattern? When did you, you know, you admit it to yourself when you decided to quit drinking to your wife. But before that, when mm-hmm. was there a shift? You're like, wait a second, maybe I need to quit drinking. No, I didn't get that shift until I just thought it was a part of a part of life, and I didn't get it until I my second arrest. I was nineteen, I think, nineteen or twenty, and I got a, I got a DUI, and I the two months before, uh, I'm sorry, first I got a DUI, then two uh, two months later I got a drinking underage at a bar, and uh, I went to jail for you know thirteen hours or so, got out, whatever, that was all fine. Well. The judge ends up calling me into the office the next week and say, hey, Zach, I saw that you got arrested. You know you were on probation. Uh, I'm going to give you 30 days. Wow. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, 30 days? I was like, I was like, I'm 19 years old. I said, uh, you know, I was like, I just got underage drinking. I like, everybody does this kind of thing. So he said, you got till 5 o'clock to turn yourself in, and you'll have to spend 30 days. Uh, don't make me come looking for you. Um, so we're in that small town where, you know, that that's allowed. So uh, I turned myself in that night, and they made me strip naked and, and you know, put the lice stuff all over my body and, and kind of checked me, um, uh, make me cough, bend over and cough. I think the reality set in, like, wow, man, how did I get to this point? At 19 years old, and my friends are in college, and I'm about to spend the next 30 days in jail with a bunch of guys. So when that door closed behind me and there was a group of, you know, 19 people in my pod looking down at me, I was like, wow, this is real. This is, this is, uh, this is alcohol. So. Yeah, I think that's when I admitted I have like, okay, this is this is me right here. Yeah, you can't beatbox your way out of that problem. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Man, and so hit, what were your? I hit the Bible pretty hard. Oh gosh, that, that that's amazing. And, and so, what were your drinking habits like, Zach? Did you ever try to moderate? And, and how much were you drinking before you finally quit? Yeah, so when I was in jail, I spent that 30 days in jail. I, I, you know, did like any good convict would do is pick up a Bible and start reading. And uh, I thought then I would have a, uh, I had a spiritual experience that I'll never do this again. I'm going to change my life totally when I get out of here. And uh, I actually got out. I didn't have to spend the full 30 days. I got out a few days early, unexpected. And uh, they called my name and said, Zach, do you, you have a ride? I was like, absolutely. And obviously I didn't, and no one even knew I was getting out. And, uh, as soon as I walked out that door, I, I ran to the closest friend's house I had. It was about a mile away, and I looked in his fridge, and I saw a Bud Ice, and I, I downed it right that second, and I was at the bar that night. And that moment, I knew that I, I had a problem, that it was not going to be fixed in the near future. And uh, so my, my drinking habits, unfortunately, spiked. I don't know why. I, I, maybe I thought I hit a bottom that I'll never have to go back to, um, but I wasn't ready to, to give in. But, heck, I wasn't even 21 yet. I wanted to be you know, able to legally experience what it's like to be an actual drinker. So until I hit 21, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic or not, because you got to be 21 to understand if you're an alcoholic, right? Definitely. That's like, that's so. like a known concept. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At that point, about 20 years old, I was an every, everyday drinker. I would take probably 
one to two days off. Uh, if it got real bad, Mondays and Tuesdays were usually my days off, and so I can kickstart to get my body back on the right track and uh, get my funds back <laughs> on the right track. Yeah, so I can wiggle my way some money to, to, to drink the rest of the week away. And uh, so the, the, that's how my habit started at a young age. Uh, you know, on my later years, uh, 21 to 22, 23, it was more of a, not a party kind of atmosphere. It was more of, okay, I got to get the drink in me to, to, you know, keep calm. And, and so I was buying cases of uh, airplane bottles of rum to take back home with me because I was living with my girlfriend at the time and she didn't she knew I drank often but when I drank during the day it was more of a I drank all day when she was gone and then I would pop a beer open when she got home to kind of mask the, the, the smell and say oh it's been a long day I'm gonna have a beer type thing so <laughs> she didn't really hey honey I'm I just was, watching I'm, watching the game with a beer on the couch how was your day <laughs> exactly exactly so uh, I, I worked from home the majority of uh, my relationship with her, so she never really knew the difference of where I was during the day or what I was doing. So, And I had a pretty high tolerance at that point. If I just stuck with beer for the most part, uh, once I got to liquor, it, you could pretty pretty much smell it and tell it on me. So <laughs> uh, I stayed. A, I tried to stay because I heard rum. You can't smell rum, right? That's the myth going around. So I did I switched <laughs> the airplane bottles of rum. <laughs> and I, I, I think that's bullshit now because uh, uh, I can smell rum on some of the people I know that uh, are <laughs> in, used to be in my what position I used to be in. So Yeah, I think Captain uh, yeah, Morgan's it, spiced rum is fairly potent to the nostrils, I believe. So. <laughs> and then did you ever try to moderate? You're like, okay, I'm doing – two bottles too many bottles of rum today tomorrow none and then i'll let myself have 50 the next day like did any of those plans ever work yeah i kicked i kicked away liquor for you know i kicked away for a month or so and just focused on beer and just drinking during football games and and when i drank i would drink but if i don't i don't like i I just tried to do you know so i would binge drink real hard on the weekends and i'd be back on that little weekend warrior phase but i started diving into right at the end of my uh 22 or so i started diving into uh other substances and i I got into meth and that kind of really moderated my drinking because (laughs) i I didn't really care about drinking at that point uh when i was on when i was on that i I didn't have to drink because drinking was just like water it didn't do anything to me i just kept on drinking and nothing happened so I, i really didn't have to do that on the weekends but once i made that leap it was like really defeat i felt defeated inside but i like i couldn't quit it at the same time so and unfortunately it was the person who who introduced me to that was was my own father and uh it's uh he's had he has his own story and he's continuing to live that story out unfortunately but after his third divorce me and him got a little closer as friends he stopped being a father and started being a friend and uh i walked in walked in on him doing it one day and uh i you know insisted that he you know give me let me give it a try and he did and oh man it was uh it was a good experience at that time for me but looking back at it, it was it's so scary to even think i was in the flight slightest bit involved in that kind of thing yeah gosh i mean some fathers bond with their son over bass fishing and i mean i can't, yes. I can't blame you i mean if, if my father had done that and he was my idol i probably would have done it too and, and i forget who i was talking to that they said the same thing that like the meth solved their drinking problem and and we alcoholics really good at solving one problem and creating many more and so here you are it appears you no longer have a drinking problem due to the meth but how'd you get off the meth did you get addicted to that you know i i i didn't thankfully i didn't i could 
I on the weekends when I started drinking, I would never do meth without drinking first. Uh, so if I was out and I was partying on the weekends, I would make that late night call and do it that way. So it was more of an enhancer for me at that point. And I, I had one bad experience with it where I, I was kind of paranoid throughout the night. I actually kind of chipped off the front of my teeth very uh, you know, very small, like uh, chips. But I was grinding my teeth so hard, and the first, you know, maybe I'm a rookie meth user, but <laughs> I mean, the first six times I was already chipping my teeth because I went to the dentist and he mentioned something about it. It's so small I can't even notice it, but through the dentist X-rays, he could actually notice it. And I was like, wow, this has got to stop. So I was able to back off of that um, substance uh, and let drinking take its take its way back up and take me take me further down the elevator. And Zach that this just goes to show that alcohol is one of the most addictive drugs in the world. Again, I can't remember who I was talking to, but kind of this is a similar story. They're like, yeah, you know, I was able to quit the meth, which, you know, our society tells us is one of the most, most addictive drugs ever, but then they couldn't kick the alcohol. And I think it's, you know, it's complicated, but it could be that simple that alcohol is just an extremely addictive substance. How do you feel about that? Oh, I, I completely agree. When I, you know, when I first quit and we'll talk, I guess we'll talk about that soon, but it, it was, I was like a caveman. Like I didn't even know how to walk and talk. Uh, I had to learn things over again because I was so used to letting alcohol take over my system and be my personality and be who I was. And uh, it's, you know, cravings. Everything looks different in the beginning of the early stages of sobriety for for me because the everything used to spike my interest in drinking. The good weather, fall, football, uh, rain. I mean, it didn't matter what it was. I have a memory for alcohol that kind of uh, ties into that. So yes, it's it's so highly addictive and uh, just as addictive as meth ever was to me personally. Uh, my brother uh, is in jail for heroin. He's a heroin addict and he's never really had drinking uh, issues. So I don't know if it's because he picked up one before the other, but uh, some people just need a, a different substance to go down their elevator. And fortunately and unfortunately, mine's alcohol. I don't know what's worse or worse, but everybody chooses their own substance to take them down. Some, some choose multiple. Yeah, and so it's nicotine, alcohol, heroin, and crack are the four most addictive drugs in the world. I mean, by like a close tie, right? It's not like one that's leading the pack. And many studies say alcohol is the number one most addictive drug in the world when you tie in the economic, the social economic factors that it wrecks, you know, havoc on society. We'll get to you know when you sobered up and how you did that in a moment, but I'm, I'm curious about your father. If you, if you mind chatting about that for a second, you said, is, mm -hmm. is he an alcoholic as well? Yeah, he, he is an alcoholic. Uh, I don't like to tell people what they are. Uh, he's never been admitted being alcoholic, but I definitely know what, what alcoholic is. And, uh, he definitely has those tendencies. He, he was a great, I don't want to paint a picture of my father being some, some messed up meth head. Uh, which he is now. <laughs> but, yeah, no, no, no. Uh, my whole childhood, uh, my parents got divorced at when I was two years old. Uh, so all I knew was different uh, divorced parents, and it really wasn't an issue for me. My my parents got along for the most part. Uh, I went to my father's on the weekend. Great father, uh, loved you know playing sports with me, uh, loved playing video games with me. He had a, was married to his wife for his third wife for eighteen years. Once that happened, once he had that third divorce, it kind of opened the floodgates for him, and I saw more of the the demon that was been bottled up inside of him, and he let it all out. And uh, unfortunately, he hasn't been able to stop that uh, in the past, you know, six years since his last divorce, and uh, it's taken him on a whole animal of a ride. And he's he's what they call a uh, he calls himself a three headed monster because he has a ga his his main his biggest issue is gambling. 
his second is is meth, and his third is is alcohol. So you combine those three. I, I've, I've seen him, and I've seen my father in ways that I, I don't want to see even ever imaginable. But I can't I can't get them out of my mind. So it's tough to see him take that take that road. But my grandfather, his father, is an alcoholic. Uh, has been sober for 27 years. So my grandfather got sober right around the same age my father did. Um, so that gives me a lot of hope that it doesn't matter where you are in your life and your sobriety or, or your alcoholism, what age you are, there is still hope. There is always hope. Uh, don't give up on just because it's, you're an age and you think you've already taken this this elevator all the way to the bottom because there's always another floor. Uh, and uh, I've seen it firsthand in my own life and in my father's life. He's yet to reach his bottom. And I thought there was, I thought he hit every every floor and there wasn't a building. And he keeps on going. Man, that yeah, that's amazing that your uh, your your grandpa's sober. He's like he's like they got bookends of sobriety around him. And I think that's the best thing you guys can do is just lead by example and hopefully you know, he'll follow when he's ready. And let's talk about when you did get sober. What was that like and how did you do it? I was at a went with a friend to a, a strip club. And it was just an ordinary night <laughs> going out on a weekend with a buddy. That's how and most sobriety a, stories start right there, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> I was uh, uh, just having a good time, and I got back about 3 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And um, my wife was in bed, and I had to crawl through the window because I lost my keys somewhere. And she had – I woke up about 10 a.m. with a bunch of missed calls, and, and she was calling at that time. And she said, Zach, you, uh, where are you? And she was crying. I said, I'm, I'm sleeping. I was like, where, what do you mean? Where am I? I'm, I'm in the house. And she's like, well, you missed my, you know, you missed my big event. And I, I know you're familiar with CrossFit. My wife's into CrossFit. And uh, she went, her and her, fam, her sister and other people, they went to the CrossFit games. They got third place. They were very good at their, their respective sport. Nice. And uh, this was very important with her, uh, for her and her. She was making big strides in, in the visual. It's really, it, it means the world. <laughs> and I totally missed it. And it was like the 10th time I missed something. And uh, But she was just, she was broken. And, and hearing that in her voice, the disappointment and the tears actually coming down really spiked the emotion in me at that moment. And I was like, man, it was, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I, I wasn't physically at my lowest. Like I could take my body to a whole nother level. But mentally, like, I couldn't tell another lie. I was tired. I was tired of just, I was mentally exhausted. And when she got home, I, I told her, uh, uh, and I broke down. And uh, I, I'm not much of a, uh, I'm more emotional now than I was back then. But uh, she, I don't think she'd ever seen me cry. But I, I, I'll admit that I cried. And I said, Ellie, I got a problem. Uh, and uh, I got a problem with alcohol and uh, among many other things. And I said, I just need help. I need you to help me. And she uh she was ready. She was ready to uh, to dive in and to to be my disciplinary, <laughs> for lack of a better word, uh, my accountability partner for sure. I wouldn't have been able to do this without her in the beginning or in the end. So that was kind of it. You know, it wasn't in a jail cell. It wasn't that. Uh, you know, I've, obviously I've, I've been arrested four times, spent many nights in jail. Like you would think that would be the end, but it was simply upsetting someone that, you know, was, you know, so close to me. And actually just be able, maybe it was God just saying, you know, whacking me in the head and saying, look what you're doing and you continue to do it. So that was, that was the trigger. And maybe it was to get out of the doghouse. I tell myself that sometimes. I said, maybe I did that just to get out of the doghouse <laughs> yeah, uh, because, for my wife. Because lines like, honey, I was at the strip club till 3 a.m. That, that's where I was. I couldn't make your CrossFit event. Yeah, like those don't work anymore. You had to make a drastic change or else she was going to make a drastic change. 
Exactly. I, I was fearful of losing her for sure. And uh, so I, that began my sobriety date. And, oh, man, those those first few months were tough. And tell me more about that. Sure. I, I think the the first week or two, I was recovering. I was, you know, trying to, to fit in and get this new way of life. I had to not answer any phone calls. My, my friends were calling me off the hook. I told them I was sick. I told them I was this. And finally, now I'm, I'm week three and I'm miserable. I'm, I'm just like, you know, I'm at the point where I was like, is this worth it? Do I really? I'm, I'm starting to rationalize in my head now. I'm like, do I really have a problem? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 24 years young. You don't really have a problem until you're under a bridge. I was starting to paint this picture of this, a true alcoholic, which was someone who has no job, has no life, has no wife, has no, you know, anything. I said, I got a lot going for me. There's no way I'm an alcoholic. You know, I might not be the most financially suited or, or you know, have the nicest car, but I have money in the bank. I got a, a beautiful girlfriend. I have, uh, I'm living under a roof. I was like, uh, and then I finally, you know, I, I was that, you know, I actually white knuckled it for a few more weeks. And I was about two months in, and I was fed up. I, I was miserable. I, I, there was no difference in me between drinking. I actually can make a case that I was a you know a better drunk to be around than a, a sober person. I'm sure so you were about I, to. You're making a compelling case too at that point because your addiction is making <laughs> that case. Yes, exactly, exactly. So I I was just a dry drunk. You know, I wasn't doing any program, and, that, and that's where the program came in. And I uh, I tell myself I was headed to the graveyard. I was driving to the graveyard. And I decided to stop in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was driving to the liquor store. And for some reason, I knew my grandfather had, was in AA. He didn't speak about it much, but he's one of those I respected because he led by example. Uh, and he was always consistent my whole life. He's just a consistently good person. And I wanted what he had, and I knew he had to get it from somewhere else. So I went to the place that I met him many times in the parking lot just to get you know extra gas money from or something like that in the past. So I knew where the, the clubhouse was. And I went there, decided to stop in a new meeting, and I sat in the back. I'm granted, I'm about two months sober here. I'm two months dry here. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting in the back, and there's a room full of people. There's probably 25 people. And they have a meeting called Step One, ironically, huh? And they go around the room, and there's black people, there's white people, there's Hispanics, there's women, there's uh, you know young people, old people, uh, big people, skinny people. And they all tell a little piece of my story as they go around the the uh, room, and I'm like, wow. I was like, how can I have this much in common with these such different people? And they, but the only difference was that they were happy. They might not, they were they were hopeful, and uh, that's when I first got my first glance of hope. And there was something that is going to be better. There was a, you know, they were reassuring me that there is something in the future. Uh, if you if you stay in here and hang in and do these steps and, and you can have a better lifestyle. You don't have to live like this. And uh, I started coming back every day after that. And that's what spiked my actual recovery. You know, I, I say I'm, I'm sober since March 10th, but that day was really what, what sparked my, uh, my sobriety uh, in my recovery and just living a, a better life. And it's been a better life ever since. And that has been your program since, correct? You're, you you just jumped headfirst in AAA, and and you got a sponsor, and you've been rocking it that way, right? Yeah, I went. I went a, a, probably about a month in AA, not exactly knowing what to do. I felt relief by just sharing my guts out, and that's probably the worst thing. That <laughs> looking back at it, I probably know what. Well, I guess it wasn't the worst thing because it kept me coming back, just being able to vent and relieve myself. Uh, finally, somebody was like. Hey man, I think it was my grandfather. He's like, 
uh, have you thought about, you know, finding a sponsor? And I was like, well, yeah, I hear about that in a meeting, but I, I don't quite understand, you know, what a sponsor is and stuff. And I remember my second meeting, I kept, my second meeting ever, uh, I sat down and Buddy came up and he gave me a big book after the meeting. And uh, he said, hey, and he gave me his card and a big book. And he said, if you ever need me, just let me know. And I said, thank you. And uh, my grandfather, you know, a month goes by. My grandfather reminds me about the sponsor. And he said, do you have anybody in mind? And I was like, well, yeah, I, I immediately went to not Buddy, but somebody else in the in my new group that I was felt more comfortable with. Like, I thought we were closer to match. I was looking for somebody a little younger, a little more open-minded, a little more, you know, <laughs> I don't want to call Buddy not cool, but you know what I mean. Yeah, There's a little more a little younger. like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And uh, so I went with this route for this other guy, and it was invisible. Uh, After two weeks of not getting nothing out of this guy, uh, I, uh, Buddy came back uh, in a meeting, and he sat down next to me. And I was I was like, Buddy, will you be my sponsor? And he said, yes. He said, uh, meet me next week. And we met. And ever since then, we've been working the program. And it's it's been the best. I mean, Buddy was always the one that I was supposed to, to be my sponsor in the first place. Uh, he gave me that big book. He gave me that card. And it's funny that he just came full circle around right back to him. And uh, we've been meeting ever since. And if the name Buddy sounds familiar, it's because he was interviewed in episode 67. Buddy, since then, has now been a very important part of Recovery Elevator. He does the accountability matches in Cafe RE. The guy has kind of become like a pseudo sponsor for me, too. He just, every time I get him on the phone, I, I assume he has like this long white beard because he just has so much infinite wisdom. And I'm always envious of you. You get to meet with him once a week. And, you know, that before we chatted, started the interview, you guys meet once a week. You've been sober for almost four years. Well, coming up on four years, you've probably finished the steps. What is it like now for you? Can you walk me through a day in your life? You said you meet with Buddy once a week. How do you stay sober today? Yes, I get up and I have my kids. So I, I try to get up a little earlier than they do. If I do that, I'll take a, I'll do some reading for my higher power, which is God. And uh, I'm Catholic, uh, recently just converted. I was raised Southern Baptist and I got tired of being knocked down at the, the altar uh, by the preacher, and so I abandoned that kind of <laughs> abandoned that God like a long time ago, and uh, I found the same God just in a different religion uh, in ca uh, Catholicism, and uh, it's been a beautiful religion for me, something very peaceful, uh, allowing me to. I'm I'm one of those that if I start praying, I start rambling if I start talking too much, so I, I like to the stationary prayers they get allow me, uh, they give me, and they uh, provide for me, and. I do some reading in the Bible in the morning. Uh, I might take something out of the, if I meet with Buddy, obviously we go over, uh, if it's step work, we go through the traditions, we go through the stories, uh, or we might just, you know, kick it and just talk about what's going on uh, in the most casual environment possible and just have a cup of coffee and just chill. But day-to-day -day recovery, I try to hit three meetings uh, a week, uh, and that's at noon, uh, my noontime meeting. Uh, it allows me to chair, which isn't ego, like doesn't, uh, you know, it more deflates my ego than anything because I'm so terrified every time I, I've chaired over a hundred times. And if anybody doesn't, isn't familiar with the AA rooms of AA, it's just, you just lead the meeting, kind of just get it going. You're not a leader, but you just kind of get the, the meeting going. And it was the most terrifying experience of my life, actually leading, like starting a meeting of 30 people, but it, it helps me get sober and it helps me hold myself accountable to, to kind of give back in that way. Other than that, I'm involved in a nonprofit organization called Orphan Aid Liberia uh, that allows me to travel to Africa and to help uh, children in need over there. 
And it's just really, uh, I think humility is a big word for me in my recovery. And that's what I try to keep in the, uh, in the front of my recovery, uh, on the front page is, is humility. And that's just doing it, doing everything for anyone else just helps me help myself. So I just love giving back. And that's, that's a huge part of my recovery. And that's something I, I abandoned the first 24 years of my life. I was so selfish and, and in my own obsession that I never looked around me. I was always focused inward, but now that I've, I've uh, calmed that demon inward. I can actually look outward and say, see who needs a helping hand. And that's been a, a blessing to be able to especially help younger kids with alcohol. And I know you've done a little bit of that uh, going through schools and stuff like that. And I do something similar in, in my hometown and just being able to spread the knowledge of alcohol. It's, you know, advertisement society paints this romantic picture of alcohol to these children and uh, did, did for me growing up. And uh, you just think that there's no way nothing bad can come out of this. And it's just so untrue. And it's just, it's sad to see, but you know, we have every opportunity in the world to make a difference now. And I'm glad people like you are doing it. And I'm glad that there's other people out there just, even if they're just sponsoring someone, that's, that's a step in the right direction. If there's one reoccurring theme in this podcast, it's that people with successful sobriety, they always mention the service work, helping other people. That's integral. And, uh, I mean, that's every single time, <laughs> like a lot of people's stories are similar, but in recovery, I'm just, I'm just waiting for it. I'm like, oh, 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 there it is helping other people getting out of their minds. I don't think you can really get sober and not be a dry drunk without it. And Zach, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Sure. Let's go. <laughs> sure. Why not? <laughs> All right. Number one, Zach, what was your worst memory from drinking? Uh, probably blue light. Uh, just anything to do with a cop, man. I, every time I saw those lights, they scared the crap out of me. Next question. We've all heard of the aha moment. Did you ever have an oh shit moment indicating, yeah, I can't control my booze? Mm, yes. Uh, I woke up one morning, my, my head was pounding so hard that I was hunting for a bottle opener to open a Corona bottle. And I just ended up just smashing the bottle over my kitchen counter and taking the drink to trying to ease the, the head pain. Next question, Zach, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? To do a daily amends, uh, and that's just living, doing the next right thing day after day and just trying to give back as much as possible. Zach, what's your favorite resource in recovery? This could be a book, an app, a program. What you got? Yeah, I, I believe my favorite resource is, you know, besides Buddy as a sponsor, is just having Alcoholics Anonymous to fellowship with. The community, I agree with that 100%. And Zach, let's couple these last two questions into one. In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? And then follow that up with advice to somebody who's thinking about quitting drinking. Yeah, uh, the best advice I've received is definitely, uh, it's probably from Buddy, and it's let go or get dragged. And because I tend to hang on to a lot of things, resentments, uh, heartaches, whatever it might be, and uh, I just continue to get dragged by them. And uh, as soon as I let go and accept that I can't change that, then just like our serenity prayer in the program, and uh, once I accept it and move on, life just opens up and gets a lot better. Uh, as far as what I would you know, sit, tell a newcomer or someone who's, who's on the verge, uh, there's nothing quite like the experience of sobriety. I thought that I've you know, tested every high there was. I tell you what, sobriety has given me far more than what drinking could ever give me. Uh, it's given me a family. It's given me a higher power. It's given me a new life, a new way to look at things. As cliche it might sound, it's uh, you deserve this. You deserve sobriety. You deserve to be able, no matter what age you are, to live whatever life you want to. And if you're the if you're a slave to alcohol or drugs, then unfortunately you're not going to be able to do that. So hopefully that you understand that you deserve this, and there's no quiet experience like uh, sobriety. 
let go or get dragged. I absolutely love that. And Zach, before we depart, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line. Oh, yes. You might be an alcoholic if your job gets in the way of your drinking. <laughs> textbook. Yep, yep. My my professions and the bills I had to pay got in the way a lot of my drinking, damn it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Zach, thank you very much for joining us and getting my day started off on the right foot. I, I love starting the day like this. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, Paul. As I mentioned earlier, a group of us from the private community Cafe RE met in Chicago from October 14th to October 16th. These meetups are awesome. This is the fourth one that we've had. On Saturday night, we had more of a structured talk. We went around, we shared what we're struggling with, what we want to change in our lives, techniques and tools of how to stay sober, what our favorite songs were, and we expanded our recovery network. This disease is communal. One cool thing about being an alcoholic, I can quickly bond with other alcoholics. The meetup started Friday night at 6 p.m. Friday night at about 7 p.m., I had a bunch of new friends that'll probably be lifelong friends. It felt good to talk with other people about real topics. One theme that a lot of us strive for is to be authentic and to be our genuine selves. If you're struggling with that right now, don't worry. Don't beat yourself up because a lot of us are. The theme for the weekend was lean in and let go. People shared what they wanted to let go of. I personally shared, I want to let go of what others think about me. It doesn't matter if people think I'm cool or a total idiot. It really doesn't matter. There's no point in wasting mental thought and energy trying to control other people's thoughts and what they think about me. That's something I've struggled with for a long time. And guess what? Others at the meetup, they struggle with the same thing too. It felt good to know that I was not alone with these feelings. So on Sunday, in Chicago, I went on a 5-mile run, about 4.5 miles further than I felt like going that day. I was happy to have met all the people. I was sad to say goodbye to them just moments before I departed on my run. It reminded me of summer camp. Holy shit, summer camp is awesome. I remember for three summers, I think it was 9, 10, and 11, my parents sent me to a Lutheran church camp in Idaho called Camp Perkins, and then an Episcopal church camp in Utah called Camp Tuttle, I believe. I'm not really sure how I ended up at these church camps. I'm pretty sure my parents were like, hey, it's summer. Go with Timmy across the street to these church camps. But they were a blast. Capture the flag, singing songs around the campfire, shamors, canoeing, archery, passing notes, telling my bunkmate Noah I was going to go talk to Kelly Cooper the last day of camp. And the last day in camp came and went. Didn't talk to Kelly Cooper. Damn it. That's a regret. But here's the good news. We're going to do this summer camp thing again. Chicago was really cool. But I realized the most important part was just us conversating with each other. We don't need the big buildings. We don't need the reflective bean architecture to have a good meetup. So I've made some calls and in Bozeman, Montana, we're going to have a recovery retreat next summer. Probably going to be around mid-August and it's going to be summer camp style. Guys are going to be in a cabin with bunk beds and girls in the other cabin with bunk beds. And we're going to have a straight up summer camp retreat, probably two nights, three nights in beautiful Bozeman, Montana. There's going to be a limited amount of spots available, and the members of Cafe RE are going to be the first to sign up. But stay tuned, information to come. We're also going to do a Recovery Elevator meetup in the LA area towards the end of January. All right, Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. Mm-hmm.